Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. nice for humans to be quiet together. The great French philosopher Pascal says that all humans' unhappiness comes down to the inability to sit still in a room alone. It's interesting when we sit and we receive the instruction Just pay attention to your breath. And then what happens? What happens for you? Be honest. How many of you could follow one inhale? An inhale and an exhale. Three breaths. Okay. What happens? Why can't we follow the breath? The mind gets involved. How does it get involved? It starts commenting. Commenting. Judging. Judging. Elaborating. Elaborating. Did most of you have this experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what we mean by dukkha. The mind's not satisfied in present experience. It has to cling to something. So it will hold on, it will contract around anything. Sensations in the body, feelings, thoughts. That's it. That's the only thing that occurs. And the mind will take any of those things and contract around it. And then when you contract around it, whatever shows up in awareness doesn't pass away. It stays there. It's so simple. So this is limb number six. Well... Everything that arises passes away. And like I said earlier, that's really easy to get intellectually. The fact that you were born means that you're going to die. But everything that arises passes away. That means 
that anything that arises in your awareness, because it's arisen, is on its way out. Just like a cloud can pass through the frame of this window, it's passing away just because it's arisen. Well, when we're happy, when there's joy, we don't, we, we don't want to know about impermanence. We, we want the pleasure to repeat itself. And this is the definition of attachment. According to Patanjali, attachment is the desire to repeat pleasurable experience. That when you have a little bit of pleasure, you want it to continue. And aversion, dvesha, is wanting to get out of our experience, to lean away from what we're noticing. And in every moment, we're flip-flopping back and forth between attachment and aversion. Raga dvesha, raga dvesha, raga dvesha, back and forth. And when you sit still, we notice that the mind is constantly trying to hold on to things. It's highly reactive. And so, according to the sixth limb of yoga, dharana, we practice what's called smrti. For those of you who are Buddhists in Pali, it's sati. So you get the satipatthana sutta. Smrti means to recall, to remember, which is often translated into English as mindfulness. So we say, here's the object of meditation. The object is the breath. You have to have an object in your meditation practice. If you just try and sit with no object, your mind will just wander after a few minutes into its habits, into its grooves. I'm sure all of you just watch that, right? I say meditate on the breath, and what happens? Your mind goes off into its favorite neuroses. And it's actually kind of boring, because we tend to think about the same stuff over and over again. We analyze ourselves, and we come up with the same conclusions. So yoga practice is for people who have burnt out on the conclusions. Burnt out on all the storytelling. So you sit and you pay attention to the breath and the thing that you'll notice is that the mind cannot stay on the breath. If you judge your meditation practice by how much you're thinking, it will be a constant source of suffering. So I say... What color do you want to use? Green. Green. So I say, meditate on the breath. This is going to be the object of meditation. There's the breath. Can you see it? Meditate on the breath. So the mind says, oh, this is great. So I meditate on the breath, and the mind says, oh, meditating on the breath. It's really nice. It's great. I wonder what else we're going to do. How long are we going to sit here? (laughs) Oh, come back to the breath, and you come back to the breath. And then you notice inhale, and then you hear a sound. Oh, what's that sound? Oh, it's the bell. Or what time would it be? It's late, it's been a long... Oh, and you catch the breath, and you come back again. 
And then whatever happens, you know, you watch the breath and someone next to you coughs. Oh no, germs, am I going to get sick? <laughs> Maybe if I get sick, I won't be able to come to the workshop. And if I can't come to the workshop, then I don't know. Oh, come back to the breath. And so this is what happens. is You, you want to stay with the breath, but the mind does all these loops. So smirti, or mindfulness, is to recall, to remember the intention So the intention is to stay with the breath. The mind's nature is to do this. So meditation practice is judged um, or valued in terms of whether or not you can make this move back. And the more you practice, the more you can catch yourself, and then these loops actually start to become smaller and smaller. And when they become really small, it's the seventh limb of yoga, which is called dhyana. And then when they stop, it's called samadhi. But dharana is where most of us are working. Because you go to meditate on the breath, and the mind has all kinds of ideas. But here's what's interesting, is that if anything that arises in awareness is impermanent, then it's passing away. You see? So, when different mental states arise, if you don't hold on to them and you just stay with the breath, they also pass away. You don't make them pass away. You can't make your thoughts stop. There's only one way to make your thoughts stop, which is to hold your breath, and then you die. What's the point of that? Yes? You said you have to have an object to meditate on. Yes. When you meditate on an object, can you say that then you just attach yourself to that object? Absolutely. You attach yourself fully to the object. Okay. Yeah. So where, where did the uh, practice of detachment go? You're, you're practicing non-attachment to everything that's distracting you from the object. Okay. And a lot's distracting you. Right. Because you're, you're attached to a lot. If you have no attachments, you can't practice non-attachment. You have to have a lot of attachments. <laughs> I saw a cartoon recently where there was um, a, uh, a meditator in full lotus with a vacuum. He was selling vacuums, and they had no attachments. <laughs> Does that work? Or only in English? Um, So it's, it's almost like setting a boundary. You need the boundary to get the flexibility. Yeah, and then in meditation practice we set two boundaries. The first is through an object. There has to be an object. And the second, and what the object is is not important, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, the other is time. You always set the meditation practice within a certain time. And you always practice for that amount of time. If you don't have a preset amount of time, then on some days, when you're irritated, you'll just get up. Or on some days where you're so attached to the stillness, you won't get up. So we set a time, and that becomes the container. That's the real thing. So whatever state of mind and body you experience in that 
30 minutes. You learn how to sit with that. And usually time is determined formally in practice by incense. Um, almost all incense is designed according to a length of time. Usually it's an hour. So like if you sit for half an hour, you just break incense in half. And that's how you time yourself. But then you have to be aware of what that smells. Yeah. There's always going to be smell and sound. But if you yeah. take, like if you take an object and you meditate on that, yeah. in one stage you have to smell around and sort of you go away from the meditation. You can smell incense without being distracted. Mm-hmm. It's just another phenomenon. In the same way that if I'm sitting and focusing on the breath and I hear a sound... And the mind clings to that sound says, oh, that's that sound, it's a kid, kids are annoying, why are they always around my meditation practice, it's supposed to be perfect. And then you're all caught up, and, and so you're letting go of that. You see? You're only focused on the breath. And as you practice, you actually start to increase what you're aware of. But at the beginning, we make the object very small. And since the breath is always present, it's the best object to start with. Like in Buddhism, for example, the Buddha taught all kinds of meditation, but he only practiced one kind, which is mindfulness of the breath. So it's all, the breath is always there. You can always feel the breath. And so it's not conceptual. Like sometimes some objects in meditation, like a mantra or something, can get a bit conceptual. It's very physical, very basic. So basic that it's hard. Because it's so basic to you. Does this make sense? Okay, so when you're caught, I mean, one of the ways that it's practical in daily life is that when you're caught up in strong emotions or strong sensations in your body or pain, then you have now a skill where you can come back to something other than what you're entangled in, other than what you're caught up in. So when you're going for your tenth croissant, or your, you know, whatever it is that you tend to do, in that moment, you have something to bring the mind back to, other than what it is that you're um, caught in. And because whatever you're feeling is impermanent, even if it's intense pain, because you've noticed it, it's on its way out. I mean, when we're in pain, we forget that what we're noticing is is impermanent. So we identify with it, and that makes it hang around even longer. Is this making sense? Yeah. Any questions about this? To a certain degree, the object of meditation in asana practice is the breath and sensation in the body. That no matter what kind of stories you're caught up in in your asana practice, you always tune back into the present experience via the breath and sensation in the body. 
But you cannot, through asana practice, work with the kind of um, subtle um, mechanisms in the mind that Patanjali suggests. You have to have a certain amount of complete stillness in order to do that. And I, I think that the people who suggest that just through asana practice you can work with everything that Patanjali is talking about, especially in the last four limbs, I think it's naive. It ten- that kind of language tends to come from people who don't practice the last four limbs. And so what I hope we're going to do over the next few days is understand what the eight limbs are and how to practice them. For me, when I started practicing Ashtanga Yoga, I had already had some (coughs) practice in Iyengar Yoga. And so, you know, I I really understood the um, intelligence of the sequence. And so I started practicing every day six days a week, you know, I lived alone, had nothing to do, practiced, you know, three hours every day for the first six years, no holidays. But as I was practicing, I started to notice that in the community around me of people who were getting certified and authorized, um, that the asana was not necessarily bringing with it a commensurate amount of compassion and kindness. And I didn't see that just asana was really helping people wake up. Um, It seemed like at some psychological level, just because you practiced third series or fourth series, didn't guarantee that you could interrupt some of the deeper habits in the personality. That you could practice great backbending and then you'd go home and have a fight with your spouse and end up in all the same old emotional patterns again. And then I had a falling out with my teacher and I started to feel that the philosophy I was studying, what the Yoga Sutra was talking about, and my asana practice had nothing in common. And the gap started getting bigger and bigger, and I had a yoga crisis. Has anybody ever had one of these? (laughs) And I just had to stop practicing, because I didn't understand what the connection was. That Does it mean that if you are just born as a gymnast, and you can go from standing to backbend, up and down, up and down, that somehow that's related to whether you can achieve enlightenment? So if I'm in a wheelchair, is there no way that that I can um, wake up? I don't understand. So are stiff people less aware? You know, what what's at the root of why we're doing this asana practice? They may not sound like big questions, but I had devoted some years just to practicing. 